morning, I want us to continue with our study on our church, church doctrine. Since February, we've been looking at our, our church doctrine, what our church believes. If you do not have a copy of the doctrinal statement, let me know because we want to make sure you get one, uh, not only so you can follow along, but you know exactly what it is that we believe. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we've sort of jumped around a little bit. Uh, we haven't really followed it point by point by point, because there are certain things that have come up. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about what our church believes concerning the Lord's Supper. One of the reasons for that is because we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning, and I thought it would just be appropriate for us to um, look at what what it is that our Bible believes about uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, Next week, in conjunction with talking about what we believe about the Lord's Supper, we are going to be talking about what do we believe concerning water baptism, or baptism in general. So we're going to be talking about that next week. Uh, I've been here nearly 10 years, and this will be the third time, I believe, that I've preached on water baptism. So people say, well, you guys make too much, uh, you place too much emphasis. Well, if we placed a lot of emphasis on what we believe about water baptism, I think I would have preached on it a whole lot more. And so, but we are, we're going to be talking about it next Sunday. Oh, by the way, one more announcement. Hank Maley told me to tell all of you hello and that he loves you, and that he misses you, but he is enjoying his new life down in South Florida. And who wouldn't, right, when it's, it's warm? And so Hank, he's been calling several times this week just to kind of give me an update on what's going on in his life, and he wanted me to tell you, uh, to greet you and tell you that he, uh, he loves you. So that's, that's Hank Maley, and he's into a, um, a church down there, and he's active, and, and he's just praising God. Uh, so be praying for Hank as he's down there. Let me read to you from our doctrinal statement. The Lord's Supper. The communion of the Lord's Supper, as revealed through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 20-26, is for members of the body of Christ to observe until He comes. There is no place in Scripture where the Lord's Supper and water baptism are linked together, either as ordinances or as sacraments for the church. Now, what you need to understand about the Lord's Supper and baptisms, and baptism, is they are not sacraments. A lot of churches, in their doctrinal statement, will talk about the fact that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. Let me give you the definition of a sacrament, so that you would understand why it is that our church does not observe the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. A sacrament, by definition, is a right or a ritual instituted as a means of grace. It's something you do in order to receive more grace. Well, folks, let me tell you what God's Word says. You can't get any more grace. Our perfect God, who loves us perfectly, has bestowed His perfect grace on us already. Do you realize there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more? Nor is there anything you can do to make God love you less. Because He loves you with a perfect love. His grace is a perfect grace. There is absolutely nothing you can do in order to garnish, to gain more grace. Now the Catholic Church has seven sacraments that they say... um, will cause God to be more gracious towards you. 
that they are instant, uh, they are installed in order to for you to receive more grace. There is baptism, water baptism. There is the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. There's penance. There's holy orders. There's matrimony. And there is the anointing of sick with oil. Those are the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. And you do those things, that's going to cause, in their mind, that's going to cause God to be more gracious towards you. Well, as I said, we do not believe that there's anything you can do or not do that's going to cause God to be any more gracious. He already loves you, and He's already bestowed upon you a perfect grace. Now, here you've got the Protestant churches. They go, no, we don't believe in penance. We don't believe in this and this and this and this. But I've seen in Protestant uh, doctrinal statements, statements of faith, we only believe in two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You mean you believe there's a way, are there things you can do to cause God to be more gracious towards you? Well, no, 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 no. Well, that's what a sacrament is. That's why we do not declare the Lord's Supper to be a sacrament. It is a memorial. It is when the body of Christ comes together where we unite together to remember the Lord's death until He comes. The Lord's Supper that we're going to be observing here in just a few moments speaks of unity of the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper, as we do this together, speaks that we are coming together without any factions, without any divisions, that we're each esteeming the other better than ourselves, that we have the mind of Christ, that we are a body of believers who love one another, who love the Lord. As you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is what we're going to do in a second, and you read that, the emphasis is remembering the Lord's death until He comes and the unity of that local assembly. Because when we do this together, what we're doing together is demonstrating that there are no factions, there are no bickerings, there are no problems within this local congregation, within the body of Christ. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 11. Let's start with verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Paul's saying, you know, it's a good thing to have heresies because it's when they come to the surface that those who know what they're talking about can straighten you out. It's basically what he's saying there. That's a paraphrase, that these heresies are good because when you, you come together, those, those heresies that you perhaps you might believe are a way for, for men to, to come and speak to that problem and straighten it out and also that they will be recognized as approved of God. 
And when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before uh, of, of her his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So God's word is very clear. When we come together, it is as a memorial to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want us to concentrate on three aspects of verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. First of all, the word show. In the Greek, it's angelo. It means to proclaim. It means to demonstrate. It means to acknowledge boldly. When we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper, as we consume that bread, as we consume the juice, the cup, what we're saying is being passed along to, to each person is that we are proclaiming that we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for us. This is not His body. This is not His blood. This does not turn into His body. This does not turn into His blood. It is a memorial that as we come together as members of the body of Christ, we in our hearts, in our minds, we are demonstrating the Lord's death until He comes. We are showing that we believe in the cross. We are demonstrating that we believe that Jesus Christ died for us on Calvary. We are proclaiming that. You are proclaiming it to the people on this side. The people on this side are proclaiming it to the people on that side. I'm watching you. We're proclaiming it to one another. We believe in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that He went to Calvary. We believe that He shed His precious blood. We believe that His body was broken. And as we consume that bread, we are saying, Lord, You did it for me. You died for me. As you partake of that, you're saying, I believe, Lord, that you if I had been the only person alive, the only one who was lost, you still would have suffered such agony on my behalf. Lord, thank you as you do show the Lord's death. You do proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. See, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, what we're telling a lost and skeptical world is that we believe in the resurrection. That's what, it, that's what we're saying. See, it would be kind of eerie if we were just wanting to demonstrate death, right? It'd be just, it, it would be uh, kind of horrifying if we were celebrating death. We're not celebrating death. 
We're celebrating the fact that we know that, that he was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised again for our justification. As we observe the Lord's Supper, it's with joy because what we're doing is expressing a belief in the resurrection. We're saying that we believe at the heart of the mystery, the heart of the gospel, is the cross. That the key to the mystery is what God's glorious, wonderful plan was by way of the cross to purchase our redemption. That's what we're saying as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're observing it until He comes. Which is interesting because the Lord told the apostles in Matthew 26, He said, I'm not going to observe this with you again until I do it with you in my Father's kingdom. But the church, the body of Christ, we're observing the Lord's Supper until He comes. And what a, what a wonderful, wonderful thing that is. Observing the Lord's Supper as set forth in 1 Corinthians 11 is absolutely, definitely for the church age, for the present dispensation. Now, you need to understand that as we observe the Lord's Supper in a few moments, it's not for the same reasons as it was instituted in Matthew chapter 26. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, the Lord says, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. When the Lord's Supper was instituted there, the Lord Jesus, um, let's start with verse 28, for, in verse 20, uh, chapter 26, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That goes back to the Old Testament and the promises by God of what He was going to do with and through the nation of Israel. This is tied to Jeremiah 31. Look, look over to Jeremiah 31. Look at Jeremiah 31. Verse 31. What was going on in Matthew 26 was the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of what is being talked about here in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. With the house of Israel? Amen. Not the church, the body of Christ, but with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Do you know the Lord? For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What the Lord Jesus is talking about in Matthew 26 is what Jeremiah the prophet was prophesying was going to take place. Look at Jeremiah 32. Look at verse 37. Again, Jeremiah the prophet speaking to the nation of Israel. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries. Gather who out of all countries? Who's he talking about here? Israel. 
Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and great wrath. And I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good and will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. That new covenant is what the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about in Matthew. Now look at Ezekiel real quick. Look at Ezekiel, chapter 37. I'm sorry, uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you. Who's he talking about here? The nation of Israel. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water. And we'll be talking about that next week. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Will I cleanse you? A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them and you shall dwell safely and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. When is that going to take place? When God enters into that new covenant, when it is realized, when it comes to fruition, when the Lord Jesus Christ establishes His kingdom on the earth. Has that occurred? No. So technically the new covenant has not been realized, but it will. It will be realized one day you say but so does that mean that the new covenant is between God and the nation of Israel absolutely it's not between God and the church the body of Christ Israel's salvation Israel's plan God's plan for Israel God's promises to Israel are without repentance they are not going to change. God is going to bring about His promises to Israel. Why? Because of His covenant with Israel. Because of His promises with Israel. His words at stake. He is going to do it. Our position, the church's position, our redemption, our justification, our sanctification is all due to the death of Christ on Calvary for certain. But we are not part of the fulfillment of that new covenant. That is with Israel and what God is going to do with Israel. You say, but wait a minute. Doesn't 2 Corinthians 3.6 say that we've been made able ministers of the new covenant? Yes, that's what it says. We have been made able ministers of the new covenant. That doesn't mean it started. That doesn't mean it's been entered into. Because 
there's one thing you have to remember about a covenant. It, it's, a covenant is between two people, right? The first covenant that God entered into with Israel, what did Israel do? Remember Moses goes and he, he, he speaks to the children of Israel and they say, we will do what the law says. And then Moses sprinkled the blood on the, on the law and, and on the altar and then on the people. The, and there has to be the blood of the testator in order for that covenant to be entered into. And a covenant is two ways. God says, this is what I will do. And Israel says, yes, amen, we'll enter into it. And so God entered into that covenant relationship with them. God has said, Jesus Christ Himself in Matthew 26, this is the New Testament of my blood. And the Lord entered into that covenant relationship, and Israel said what? We will not have this man to reign over us. And they rejected the crucified Lord who shed His blood. So that covenant has not been realized. But you need to understand that we, as members of the body of Christ, benefit tremendously from that rejection. It is the Gentiles who have been brought into the blessings of that death of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. By faith believing, we can be made part of the body of Christ. See, the body of Christ was, was not revealed in the Old Testament. The, that the Jew and Gentile was going to make up this one joint body. It was nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament. But how are we going to get into that body? How, by what basis can God be just and the justifier to put us in that body in order for us to be able to stand redeemed? The blood of Jesus Christ. It is the basis for our salvation. It is the basis for our justification, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can proclaim that glorious truth that by His death we have salvation, that by His death the required penalty for our sin has been paid. By His shed blood we can have been made righteous. So our position in Christ, our redemption, our justification, our sanctification is all due to the death of Christ on Calvary. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 told us to remember the Lord's death. Because our salvation, yes it's by God's grace, but God's grace because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. It is what allows God to be gracious because the penalty has been paid. The wages of sin is death. And God, in order for God to be just, see, God can't just sweep our sins under the rug. He can't turn a blind eye to our sin and go, I just love them so much, I'm just going to embrace them anyway. The payment had to be made. And the Lord Jesus Christ stretched out His arms and He made, provided, gave up His life, payment in full, so that we might have everlasting life. He paid that debt that I owed. And indeed, we are to remember His death. We are to celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled the world to Himself. By what act? By His teachings? No. By His miracles? No. By His perfect life? By the example He set? No. By His covenant promises to Israel? No. It's by the cross. By the cross and the resurrection that we can stand with the Apostle Paul, and said, if we're going to glory, we glory in the cross. As a matter of fact, it's only the body of Christ that's been told to rejoice in the body of Christ. 
I mean, in, the, in the death of Christ. The nation of Israel, when Peter preached, it was repent of that dastardly deed that you've done. You murdered him. You killed him. You delivered him with, by wicked hands. It was something to be ashamed of. It was something to, to repent of. And here the body of Christ, made up of Jew and Gentile, we rejoice over the fact that the cross took place. Oh, it was a horrible death. But it was God Himself giving His life. How in the world could such a cruel, cruel instrument of death and suffering and grief and shame be turned into an instrument of praise and exaltation? How could something so severe cause us to sing such beautiful songs? There's only one answer. It's when our holy, righteous God acknowledged that the sin debt has been paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's the cross, in my opinion, that epitomizes Romans 8.28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Even the cross, God used something as, as terrible and as horrible as that for His good. The purpose of the cross is to reconcile man to God. Not was, because it's still going on. You understand that? Salvation is still being offered to all who believe and put their faith and trust in Christ. Salvation is offered to all who believe. So as we observe the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're remembering the Lord's death until He comes. We are acknowledging by faith that we believe that His death is paid in full for our sins. We are saying we believe by faith that hell is not in our death future, that heaven is in our future because our confidence is in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by our works, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on Golgotha. And how important is the cross? You omit the cross. You have no gospel. You have no gospel. You have no salvation message. You have no good news. If you take away the cross... The only other doctrine that equals it in importance is the resurrection. And it's the cross and the grave and the resurrection that is the good news for lost man that they can know God personally and be reconnected to Him. What a glorious message that this grace of God that we enjoy tells us. Turn to Ephesians. This Paul of Tarsus this, minute, this, this apostle to the Gentiles, this one that the mystery was revealed to, glories in the cross. You don't hear this kind of message from Peter or James or John or any of the other apostles. But listen to what the truth is concerning the body of Christ in this present dispensation. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. You want to know how important the cross is? Listen to this. Ephesians 1, 7, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Isn't that good news? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, were made nigh by the blood of Christ. 
For he is our peace, who hath made us both one, and broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Look at Colossians real quick. Look at Colossians, chapter 1. Look at verse 14. Colossians 1, 14. In whom, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Look at Colossians 1, 19, or 20. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled, reconnected. How did that transpire? By the blood of the cross. Look real quick to Romans chapter 3. These, I just want you to have these verses in mind as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 25. In whom or, or God in whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And the one I really want you to be thinking about as we partake of the Lord's Supper now is Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Through Him. Reconciled to God through the cross. Friends, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us who saved, it's the power of God and to salvation. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, let me emphasize, you do this remembering that you are in the body of Christ. You are saved because of what Christ accomplished on Calvary. His body was broken. His blood was spilt. And as we partake, as you partake, you are declaring, I believe He did it for me. And you're saying, I'm going to keep doing this until He comes. Yes, He died. But he's alive. And as we partake it together, we, we, as the bread and the, and the cup is passed, we ask that you wait until everyone is served. And then we partake together. And after the bread is served, then we'll partake together. After the cup is served, we'll partake together. So let's pray as the guys come forward to help us with this. Father. As we partake now of the Lord's Supper, we thank you so much 
for this time that we can remember the Lord's death. Father, we do this as a memorial. Father, we do so recognizing that it was the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary that has purchased our redemption. That it is the Lord Jesus Christ's willingness to give up His life and die in our place that reconnects us to the Father. Father, we thank You for that this morning. And Father, I pray here today that there is no division in this local body. That Father, as we partake, that it is with one heart and one mind and with love for one another and love for You as we celebrate the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in His holy and precious name. Amen.